some of you this morning having that text read, may or th- maybe you are thinking somewhat like my son. My son turned to me and said, Dad, are you going to get through all of this? <laughs> um, to his astonishment, right? Um, normally, we're good to make it through a phrase or two. But yes, I assured him and I assure you, I think together this morning, we will get through all of this. Um, there is a particular reason why. Um, if you'll look briefly, th- this, what I want to handle is all four of these mighty acts that, you, that have just been read for you. Because if you look at the Lu- uh, Luke's gospel, it's actually a, a, a single unit. So, so it, it's, it's helpful if we handle it that way. There's two particular phrases I want to key you in on just by way of introduction so that when you're looking at it, you're thinking, here's kind of a parenthesis. Here's kind of a parenthesis, and here's another parenthesis, and in between that is the content I'm considering. What are those textual markers for you to be able to kind of think, how am I, so that I'm not reading these acts right here as individual moments in time, and then treating each one individually. Though it's necessary you could do that kind of thing, without a doubt. But what we're considering is how it's being structured in Luke's gospel. I want to show you those little parentheses and then keep moving with you, because indeed I do have a lot to cover this morning. But if you look in your text of chapter 8, I want to key you in on where your mind should go as you begin to deal with the information that's coming at you in these what we'll call mighty acts. And that's verse 25 of chapter 8, and there's a particular phrase there that is critical to understanding the entire text. And the statement in verse 25 is he said to them, where is your faith? That's a, okay, now you have a textual marker for you to be able to kind of put in your mind the information that is going to be able to develop, that is going to be developing in front of you. Where is your faith? So already, reader, where do you enter the narrative story this morning? You've come this Lord's Day to sit under the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God as an effectual means of your salvation. Okay, as you sit and you hear Ask yourself the question that the text is asking you. Where is your faith? Note carefully as well, in that moment, it isn't like as in, where is it inside of you? Where is it, did it get away from you? It's where is it as in, where is it resting? What's the object? of your faith. Mark that in your text, and then you'll see the information that's coming out. The second part of the text, this whole, these four mighty acts are leading us into chapter 9. So we're following it kind of in a literary format now through Luke's gospel. Chapter 9, if you look over just briefly, here's your other kind of encapsulating moment or the other parentheses on the outside of these four mighty acts. And it's leading us, if we were to sit down and simply read Luke's gospel, this is how it is framed for you to arrive at these various moments in the story, to be engaged by the gospel of Luke. Where is your faith? Information, information, event after event, and then here is kind of where it's guiding us in chapter 9, verse 19. And they answered, John, the. well, I'll just start at 18, and then we'll keep moving. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Okay, now, again, as a reader, you're remembering what has taken place, about what we're going to go through together this morning. But remember, that's what's taken place if you were simply reading the gospel, reading through it. 
you're reading these mighty acts. And then he's asking you as though you were there in 18 and 19. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. Um, The word on the street is that others say that you're one of the prophets of old that has risen. Then Jesus said to them, to you. But who do you say that I am? As in, now, now that, that's where you're going. That's where Luke this morning is leading you. Where is your faith? What is its object? And, and who do you now say that I am? These are the probing questions that Luke has for you in the text. There's a repeated structure to each of these four mighty acts. I'm calling them four mighty acts because we're going to handle all of them together. If you go back into chapter 8, we'll go right across what he does over the, the natural elements, what he does over the demonic realm, what he does over even death itself, and a woman suffering of hemorrhage. If we were to look at these four mighty acts, there is a repeated structure within them which makes them a single unit, and that's why we should deal with them this way. The reason that they are kind of structured the same, and I hope to point that out to you in just a moment, is because it keeps the primary question in front of you the entire time. Remember, as you go through the text this morning, the probing question that Luke has for you this morning is who is Jesus Christ? This is the question, if, if we were to take a quiz right now, that, that's the question on the quiz. And then you're to provide a sufficient or biblical or accurate answer. In order, of course, to answer that, you need information, which is what's now going to be provided you through these four mighty acts, that you could then, after having dealt with these mighty acts, answer affirmingly the correct answer. The question before you as you approach these four mighty acts is, who is? And if I could ask you this morning, who is Jesus Christ? The second question that you, that you have to know belongs to the first, or might we say an implication of the broader question is, what will your response be to him? So if it's a necessary implication Because, as you would agree, I'm sure, if we were to look at the text of Holy Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ is never neutral. It isn't, as you look at these four mighty acts, information for information's sake. It always, with a probing question such as, who is the Son of God? Or, who do you say that I am? The necessary implication is, if you answer that correctly who he is, then you have a response on your hands that you must make. That's how the gospel is being framed. That's how you, each one of you this Lord's Day, is in the narrative. It's asking you the questions. And if you can answer them, what is your response this morning? Or or what will your response be? For again, information or revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ is never information for information's sake. It always has a call within it. Every time, it always places a call upon the listener. In fact, we could press it further. 
it always has a demand on the listener. As I said to you then, each one of these four mighty acts that I want to handle with you this morning, it's a little bit different than typically I do. This morning's going to be feeling, I think, maybe to you a little bit more of like a Bible study. We're going to do a lot of work, a lot of spade work in the text, which might be a little bit different for you this morning. But I think, again, because it's a unit, this might be our most profitable way of handling it together. These four mighty acts have four structural pieces. So if you were to look at like the first one, the second one, the third one, and the fourth one, all in a row, these mighty acts, you would find like highlighted in that column these four pieces in the windstorm, these four pieces in the man who is demon-possessed, these four pieces in the woman who is suffering hemorrhage, and these four pieces in the young girl who is dying. These four pieces we pull out of column one, two, three, and four, and we put them together, and we see these are common features of each and every one of these mighty acts. So they, are, they rise out of the mighty acts to be the points of concern for us as the readers. This is, in other words, what these events are trying to teach you or instruct you, to lead you down to the question that is pointing. Who do you say that I am? So let me give them to you up front, and then we'll analyze each from the passage. The four structural elements that you'll find, or we will find together in just a few moments, in each and every one of the narratives is number one. There's a dangerous situation. That's simply the context that is created here. We're finding out, as we're being asked, who do you say that I am? We're finding out who he is through a dangerous situation. That's, that's the first element. You, you, I mean, it's obvious to you. The second element within the text is people are perishing. So, so you look at narrative one, narrative two, narrative three, and narrative four, or mighty event one, two, three, and four, and you find a dangerous situation. Secondly, you find people perishing. Third, you see Jesus personally and directly intervening. That's critical. You find that in each one of those columns. Number four, you find a personal response is required. These are the four structural components. If you were to put them all together, a dangerous situation is created. People are within it, and they are perishing. Jesus personally and directly intervenes, and a personal response to you this morning, listener, is required. With these four broad structural components of each of the narratives, we are given a portrait. And and I want to press this just with you so that... As we look at it, we receive these texts properly. We're receiving a portrait this morning of not only who he was, that is, who our Lord was, or how he acted, but rather we are receiving a portrait of who he is and how he acts. Again, we might not be on a boat in the middle of a sea in a windstorm in the Sea of Galilee. Granted. But that doesn't mean since we're not there, we must not have any difficulties. Do you see how the narratives are functioning? It isn't so you look and say, they got in a boat. Then if you, if you look at the typography of the Sea of Galilee and you have this cleft and this cleft and then you have a windstorm that channels through and the boat is going over and you see he was in that situation and he acted that way. That's a neat story. It is who he is in difficulty that emerges and how he acts. 
on your behalf. That's the translative, translation value. In other words, whatever the situation, whether it be emotional, spiritual, or physical hurt and difficulty, whatever the situation you are in, Jesus can and desires to deliver you. Now, right there, it can seem like a bit of a rub, but, but how does such, what does such deliverance look like? Maybe the, the response. So, I'm in a difficult place, and you say that he can and desires to deliver, but what does such deliverance look like? Maybe a saint. I've been praying for a season of time. I've been in this difficult kind of boat with this windstorm, if we kind of put it in the allegorical sense. I've been in this place a very long time. Well, what do you mean? If he can and he desires to, what does such deliverance look like? I would just briefly answer as we look at the text. I want to encourage you with a thought of deliverance. Think of it this way with me, just for a moment. Deliverance looks like a faith which receives and rests upon him alone as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. What does such deliverance look like? It looks like a faith which receives and rests upon him alone as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. And I don't mean like punctiliar, like in a moment, like this morning. I mean a faith that rests upon him and receives him as he is freely offered to you every moment of every day. That his deliverance, even if the storm is still tossing, It is a faith, if I could press it further, what does deliverance look like? It is a faith which is granted to you of sovereign grace. It is a faith which is strengthened through the preaching of his most holy word. What does deliverance in my difficulty look like? It looks like a faith which is nourished through the sacraments. It is a faith of which you possess by sovereign grace which is enriched by the gathering, giving, and the receiving of the saints. It is a faith which is given, birthed in you in difficulty, which is warmed through communion and prayer. In some such deliverance, in difficulty, is a faith that is assured. You, you see, I just, I'll, I'll jump ahead. You see it in verse 48 of chapter 8. Look at the final comment of verse 48. Your faith has made you well. Look at the attending to faith. God's peace. Go in peace. I want to sketch each of the stories quickly with you this morning. I want to sketch each one of these stories according to these four elements that I said are, are, pre, are present within them and then kind of draw out a common feature of each of these situations and have a point of application that attends to each. Again, remember as we put it in front of our minds for the next few moments, we are receiving in these narratives a portrait of who Jesus Christ is is. Please, not simply who he was. 
regardless of your difficult situation. This is who he is. And this is how he acts to deliver. I'll press just one more word as we jump into the text for your mind to remember. Hebrews 13, 8 is another text you can consider. It, it simply says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You must receive that as you look at these biblical narrative stories. Lest we do think it's information for information's sake. Like, it's good for them that he acted that way. But rather, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. First consider then, as we look at the first set, uh, 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 or we look at the first kind of, of four elements that come together to build these narratives, look at the d- dangerous situations. I know they're kind of obvious, but I want to run through the text with you just so that we can see each category as these four elements arise out of these narratives. As we said, each one of them presents to you, a reader, a dangerous or perilous situation. Look at the first one of the windstorm in verse 22 and 23. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water. That is their boat is taking on water and going to capsize or sink. And, and then he, Luke finalized the comment with what we're looking at, each and every one of these narratives, and they were in danger. So again, here's a a situation created by God to then enter into that theater and act as a revelation of who he is, to teach and instruct the reader of who he is. The second one, look at the dangerous situation that is common to structure these four mighty acts. We have a portrait arise out of who our Lord is and how he acts. You have a demon-possessed individual. Look at chapter 8, 29, and 30. I'll draw your attention to uh, 29 and 30. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So clearly what it's backfilling the information, this man is uh, uh, demon-possessed. And then it continues, for many a time... It had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Clearly a perilous and difficult situation. Thirdly, look at the third out of our our narrative structure that's helping us receive a portrait of our Lord. The young girl who is dying. Look in verse 42 of chapter 8. Verse 42. For he had an only daughter. This is Jairus, the man. I'll just start in 40. It's easier to gather the pieces. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. And she was dying. Again, a very difficult and dangerous situation. Move forward one more of the four mighty acts. Fourthly, consider the dangerous situation which is in the text. And it's a woman suffering from a hemorrhage. Look at the next verse there in 43. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. 
And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. When we read of these four mighty acts, there's many things that we could say about each as we would treat them individually. But what I'm pressing is that we would come together and grasp all four as a unit in dangerous situations and ask one particular question for ourselves this morning. And that is this. When you read all four pieces of those dangerous situations, I'm asking you, what is the common human feature of the text? Why am I asking that? Because that's who we are, coming as readers, students, to hear, to sit under, to find ourselves within the story of these mighty acts. So what is the common human feature of each and every one of these mighty acts? It's this, the frailty of humanity. The text is pressing you about the frailty of humanity. That is, again, to say something obvious, but maybe something that we don't like to think upon, about ourselves particularly. This text reveals against the grain of our thought. Well, maybe we sincerely know it to be true, but we might want want others to think it true of us. But the reality is, being human means being weak and frail, subject to every kind of hardship in this life. That's the reality. Again, perhaps we don't want others to think ourselves in that category, or we even resist the actual thoughts that we do belong to that category. But the text is clear. In every one of these dangerous situations, where you find yourself this morning is in that same context, weak and frail, subject to every kind of hardship in this life. Look at the second portion that arises that's shared across all four mighty acts. There is a dangerous situation that is created. And within that dangerous situation, there is number two. People are perishing. Look back at the windstorm to see how this this jumps right off the page. And it's very obvious. But again, what is the shared human feature? Look at the text. Windstorm, verse 24. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. That is an obvious one right there. What is the second component within these narratives? People are present, and they are perishing. Look at the demon-possessed man in verse 27. Well, I'll jump in 26 and 27. Then they sailed to the, uh, uh, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. That's just kind of a, a comment on uh, where they sailed is a predominantly Gentile area. So they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out onto the ground, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. That's hardly a picture of human flourishing. Again, consider, again, not in a a myth-type way, because I I get it that there's some sort of gap between us and this text in the sense of demon possession and, and suffering in that manner. 
I understand that. I, I, don't, I don't know that I have ever, well, I, I'll just say I haven't ever met an individual who's been demon-possessed. So, I, so I, get, I get the sense. I, I would judge that you probably have not either. I think that would probably be a fair judgment. But it, so then it creates some sort of distance between us and this text, perhaps. But, but, but don't let it look at the text. This man is burdened and beset by incredible weakness. Demon possession. Living among what you would probably think, among the tombs. A place where he is being tormented, mentally, physically. This man is not flourishing. He is perishing. Continue as you were reading through these episodes as the, as the Lord is asking, but who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say? Where is your faith? Consider as you're reading the themes that are being established in these four mighty acts. The next one, where people are present and they are perishing. Look at the young girl who is dying. Verse 52 and verse 53. So again, if you were studying this text, you'd be outlining it. You'd be writing this out. I'm seeing what is common and what the Lord is teaching and instructing me through each of these episodes. People are frail and people are perishing. Verse 52, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said to her, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And verse 53, and they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Again, a young girl, age 12, the text says, who is perishing. The next one is a woman suffering from hemorrhage. If you were to read this next mighty act, the woman of hemorrhage, look in verse 43 as you jump up and see yet again people in each of these episodes in danger and in danger in human frailty, they are perishing. Verse 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on positions, she could not be healed by anyone. I want to point out to you as we look at the text, each and every one of these moments of perishing, real people in real frail conditions, being tortured or injured or harmed or suffering, people being frail, subject to every kind of hardship in this life, we are a people who are perishing. It's interesting that as Luke begins with the windstorm, you notice the disciples cry out, Master, master, this bonded relationship that they share with the Lord. Master, master, we are perishing. Luke goes on to use this term perishing. So if you think about it visually, consider the term at the very first of the four mighty acts. He introduces first and foremost this phrase, we are perishing. He uses that word with a broad spectrum because that word goes on to pre, uh, uh, appear, that's the word I was looking for, appear in his gospel to denote both physical suffering. So you'll notice that later, like right here, because it kind of has that physical tone, right? They're, they're, literally, physically, they're, 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 they're perishing, they're going to die. But it stands for more than that. He'll use it again. I'll give you the, the portions for some of you. Verse, uh, chapter 15, 24. You'll go on. We'll get there in a year or two in chapter 15, verse 24. 
and you'll see it's referring to physical suffering, physical perishing. But you'll notice he used the exact same term in 13, 3 through 5. Our Lord says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Luke using the same term. What's so significant about that? We'll consider once again here as the first of four mighty acts to you, the reader. To consider yourself. We are perishing. And then he gives a few examples that show different types, different ways, but one commonality. All humans are perishing. Even in our moments of flourishing. Luke uses the term to signify a broader sense, which includes not simply the physical, but necessarily the, the physical, but also the spiritual plight of each and every individual. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote this following the text. He said, quote, How criminal to look at life through rose-colored spectacles. It is only as we face the facts and realize the true nature of the problem that we shall come to see that one power alone is sufficient and adequate to deal with it. The power of God. This is precisely what we see in that third element that Luke is trying to show us. You are weaker than you think. And weak and frail, whether physical or spiritual or both, you are perishing. You, 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 you are going the way of death. So he says how criminal to look at life through rose-colored spectacles. This leads us directly into our third structural component of the narrative. Consider it this way, where I said to you, after you see the dangerous situation that is created of our Lord, as we see the context, the theater, and then people within those dangerous situations are necessarily, they are, they are there, they are human, therefore they are perishing. What takes place, third component of the narrative, Jesus personally and directly intervenes. Back to the windstorm then in our first column as we consider the first of four mighty acts. Look at the natural elements of the windstorm where our Lord intervenes. Verse 24, and they went and they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a call. Look at the next of in the next column over is the next mighty is the ni- next mighty act where our Lord intervenes. Consider the demon possessed individual. Look in verse twenty eight and twenty nine. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, "What have you to do with me, 
Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. You see, but the demon is doing precisely that to the individual, tormenting him. Don't torment me, but you're tormenting him. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time. It had seized him. He was keeping under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and he'd be driven by the demon into the desert. But notice as our Lord intervenes, drop down to verse 35, and you find the man doing what? The demon had gone out because our Lord intervened. You find the man sitting at the feet of Jesus. And look at the way that Luke writes of it. He was clothed and in his right mind. Look at our Lord's intervention to the woman suffering from a hemorrhage. Verse 44 and 47 through 47. Look at the text with me as our Lord intervenes yet again. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And and, and look at the way that Luke writes next. Immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, Master, the crowd surrounding you, you are being pressed in on. And, and so you, you kind of picture what's taking place. Our Lord is moving from point A uh, where he is uh, with the demon-possessed man, and he's going to Jairus' home to deal with the daughter, the 12-year-old girl. And as they're passing by, the crowds now have gathered after the demon has been cast out, and they are pressing in on him. Here, this woman, because the crowds are pressing in on our Lord, she on the outside is able to reach in and touch his garment. That's how he can say, kind of in one of these situations, who just touched me? And he said, well, everybody's pressing in on you. People are getting all around you. We've got to get you out of here. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about in, in that. Someone touched me. Do you see what he's saying? The object of someone's faith Someone touched me. She was healed. Look at the young girl who is dying as our Lord intervenes, 54 and 55. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And then for proof of the healing, right, you see, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. This wasn't magic. She wasn't a spirit. He is Lord over death. He can command a spirit to return and resurrect. If I were to just simply briefly read for you each and every one of those outcomes, where our Lord to a weak and frail people in the midst of difficult and dangerous situations. When he intervenes, the raging waves cease. Again, I know we're not on a boat right now, but that doesn't mean that we're not set about as frail human beings in dangerous and difficult and perilous situations. Whether that be emotional on the brink of 
almost feeling we're going to go nuts? Or set about by confusion of various forms, depression, discouragement, relational, spiritual, weak and frail. We are set about with various difficult situations. Our Lord intervenes in the raging and crashing sea ceases. This is what leaps out to you as a reader. The man is then clothed in his right mind. Sometimes, have you ever thought, I don't know up for down. I don't know left or right. I don't know what to do. I feel utterly confused. A man is clothed in his right mind by the intervention of the Lord. Her spirit, the young woman, the young girl, 12 years old. What happened to her when Jesus intervened? Luke says she got up at once. The fourth piece, the woman suffering a hemorrhage for several years, spending all her money on doctors who couldn't heal. She was immediately, Luke says, healed. What is the common human feature, then I ask you, of the text? What is it now? If it was a dangerous situation, weak and frail. If it is a people, when we are just simply human, we are indeed perishing. What is the common feature of this text? It is that the power of God in Jesus Christ is the one power sufficient and adequate to deal with our perishing. And not only that, but you've seen time and time in Luke, if you've been able to be with us from very early on in Luke's gospel, we see a picture of our Lord that is significant in such a manner as to say, it's not simply that he is able to heal you, that he is able or capable, but rather he is compassionate toward you and he desires to heal. He desires to save. He desires to deliver it isn't simply that he's out there in some sort of fashion like, you know, he could and I know it. A data point historically. It's that he can and he wants to. Do you remember that with the leper? It's so fascinating as you stand back with the, with the episode of the leper in chapter 5. Do you remember his comment to our Lord? He said, if you want to heal me, you could. You remember our Lord's response. And I want to be healed. This is the picture consistently of our Lord. Compassionate to our weakness and our frailty. Intervening on our behalf for deliverance in difficult situations. The fourth and final component of the narrative is this. As I said to you before, a personal response is required in each one of these cases. So I press to you this morning. A personal response is required. It isn't information for information's sake. It isn't activity of healing and miracle for, for, for mind-blowing awe. It, it, it indeed presses upon you. A response is required. 
Look at the windstorm of verse 25, which kind of is the paradigm that sets the entire thing apart. Really, that, that, that first narrative is the structure for really grasping the significance of each and every one of them going forward. Verse 25, so direct, so forward to each and every one of us. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, and look at the question of the text that then we get back to in chapter 9, who then is this? which he asks them after these events, you're right, who do you say that I am? Clearly, when he says, where is your faith? They say, who is this? Those two things correspond. He is the sole object of saving faith. That's who he is, the Son of God Most High. Look at the young girl who is dying. Again, 49, verse 49 and 50. This is joining back with the father. Look at, look at how striking this episode is with Jairus. In verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house. This is We picked up right after the woman of hemorrhage has been healed. So we're joining back with Jairus, the father of the 12-year-old girl who is dying. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said to him, and here's our Lord and here's Jairus. And he says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So, so put yourself there. Here's Jairus, the father, begging Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. And they're making it through the crowd. And then someone comes through the crowd, and he looks at Jairus, and here is Jesus, and here is Jairus, and he looks at Jairus in front of Jesus and says, don't bother him. Your daughter's already died. Our Lord, standing there, turns to Jairus in a tremendously difficult situation. Your child, if you're a parent, you get, your child just died. And our Lord turns to Jairus. You notice he says this. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. Do not fear. No, Jarius, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. Where is your faith? What is its object? Who are you trusting in? Only believe and she will be well. The woman suffering with a hemorrhage is our final concern here as we look at the woman suffering and a personal response is required in each and every case. Where is your faith? Don't fear. Only believe. Finally, the woman suffering from a hemorrhage. Look at verse 48 just briefly as we close. Verse 48. And he said to her, now we'll jump to 47 because this is tremendous, 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, right? So she got caught. Everybody's already, Jesus says, someone touched me. And he, you can picture him pushing people out. Someone just touched me. She came trembling and falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Do you see that? Why? 
Not because he's a random passerbyer. I touched him because I need healing. He's the sole object of saving faith. That's why. Not simply that I did, I admit it, I touched him. She declared to everybody there, this is why I did it. And notice the text, and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith, not magic, not my robe, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He affirms, you're right. Placing, resting, and receiving by faith, me, has made you well. So what is the common human feature of the text? I've repeated it 10,000 times. Jesus is the true and sole object. He was, and he is, and he will forever be the sole object of saving faith. For everyone here who is one in a difficult situation, which means alive and breathing, for everyone here who is human, which is every one of us, set about by various weaknesses and challenges and hardships. The end result is the same. Jesus, the Son of God, is the true and sole object of saving faith. Whether it is in a natural realm of difficulty, satanic realm of spiritual warfare, or even facing possible death with cancer or other. Our Lord turns to you at the end of this text, each and every one of you this morning, and says to you, please, do not fear. Only believe. And you will be well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for these episodes. I thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ and the word of Holy Scripture that we're able to gather on a Lord's day, submit our lives to it, receive from it, and so experience nourishment. Father, please, as we confess, it is through the reading and especially the preaching of the word of God that the Spirit makes an effectual means unto salvation. I pray through the preaching of the word that your Spirit, if there is one here or many, here, questioning outside the realm of faith that rests upon and receives only our Lord. I pray that you will make this time an effectual means unto salvation. In Christ's name we pray and thank you.